the volume. This Sessions is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. They're America's number one sportsbook for a reason, y'all. It's so easy to use. It's safe and secure. That's one of the main things for me. I don't want any BS. I love that there's no BS with FanDuel. Plus, you get your winnings fast. Now winnings are delivered in as quick as two hours. Plus, it's super fun to combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. It's awesome. So if you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with the promo code Renee, that's R-E-N-E-E, so that they know that I sent you. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, Wyoming, or West Virginia. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona 18887897777 or visit ccpg.org/chat for Connecticut 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com/rg for Colorado, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, New Jersey, Pennsylvania and Virginia 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY for New York Tennessee Redline 1-800-889-9789 and 1-800-522-4700 for Wyoming. Visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia. Hey guys, welcome to the best of the sessions. What we have done is we've combined the best of Tuesday's episode and Thursday's episode, mashed them together to give you a beautiful little audio gift for your ear holes. We have some awesome, awesome guests on the show. Cannot thank people enough for taking the time to, to come hang out with me. Give me a little bit of their time. We give you a little bit of that. We all get to hang out and enjoy it, learn a little bit about each other. Um, so it's really cool to mash these all together and you guys can get those little abbreviated highlights of both of the interviews throughout the week. Also, of course, if you want to listen to the full lengths, you can do that. They all exist. Uh, just make sure to check out all things from the Volume Podcast Network. Like, subscribe, turn on those notifications, all that good stuff. But let's get into it. Here's the best of the sessions. Is the pressure on for me to like really nail an interview with my boss? No. A little bit. A little (laughs) bit. (laughs) No judgment being passed whatsoever. I once had to interview Barack Obama twice. That was nerve wracking. How do you prepare for something like that? I just kind of had 12 questions. I whittled it down to six. And then if he if it went longer, I'd ad lib. But um I don't prepare for most guests like podcasting. I do, but like if I'm doing a show, I don't usually know who's on until like I step to the mic right before the show. And there's a list. Bob Costas was one of my idols. You know, if Bob is coming on, I'm probably going to give it a good hour of thought, but I'm a pressure free guest. So don't worry about that. I feel like I go back and forth. There's times that I feel like I put in a ton of work on certain interviews of like what I want to ask someone and blah, blah, blah. But then there's other times when I just throw caution to the wind and those end up being my favorite interviews usually to just like see what's going to happen. Turn on the mic and figure it out. That's not what I'm doing here with you today because I felt like I should prepare a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's funny. How do you juggle everything? I mean, how do you juggle from, from living your life, doing the herd, launching the volume How are you doing all of this? I think I surround myself with really good people. I'm not a meddler, whether it's at FS1, iHeartRadio, or the volume. You know, I hire good people. I do my homework before the hire, and then I just get out of the way. And if I have to occasionally bark or, um, you know, say, hey, this doesn't feel authentic to my brand, or I think we're forcing this, I mean, that's very infrequent. But I've been doing it so long. I know what I like. I've surrounded myself with people who know what I like. I also think you reach a point in your career where I'm not losing sleep if I have a bad segment. You can't let it get to your head. Prep, let it rip, go have a cocktail. Don't overthink it. How long did it take you to get to that point? About 10 years. I think 32, 33 years old. I just felt like you're stressing out too much. Just let it rip, be natural. I also think about 32, 33, I kind of found my voice. Up to that point, I was doing, you know, 10% of this person, 10% of that person. I had influences, a little Letterman, a little Costas. 
And then all of a sudden, one day you've talked so much, you stop thinking about them and you just become the best version of you. But I, that's why I, I take criticism pretty well. I, I'm not trying to bat a thousand here. I'm not going to be precious on stuff. I have bad segments. I misread shit. I mean, it just happens. You can't worry about it. You know, also the, the, there are people in my life who have resumes that deserve my attention. If, if a successful broadcaster or a successful executive comes to me and questions something, that's different than a random guy on Twitter. Who are you? Everybody's great on Twitter. I'm not really interested. Oh, my God. I was literally just saying that right before you hopped on here, but in like sort of a different context that somebody had tweeted at me trying to like burn me in some capacity. And I responded with the accurate reason of, you know, what happened. And they're like, just kidding. Huge fan, big supporter. It's like, oh, my God, stay off the Internet. That stuff drives me bonkers. People just trying to get attention or screaming into the abyss on this blue little bird machine. You've done some stand up, right? I mean, I would use that term very loosely. The only reason I ever did stand up was because kind of like you just mentioned, you have your idols, these people that you really look up to. For me, that was uh, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Sarah Silverman. Those were and Chelsea Handler was a huge one for me. Um, and those women all had done stand up to some degree, maybe not so much Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. But that was something I just felt like I'm like, well, if they're doing that. I got to just go give it a shot. And it was terrifying. But um, no, it was not the thing that I wanted to do. But think about that. Think how long it takes a comedian to go on stage, work out an act at the comedy store or at home before they nail it. We don't get that. We're not actors where it's edited. We're not writers where you have a copy editor. Uh, local news is a teleprompter. I am ad-libbing for three hours a day. No shit. I have an occasional bad interview or guest. This is live. And, and now podcasting is different. I, I do a podcast. I can edit out a bad moment. Uh, it's much more ideal as a platform because I can edit out rough spots. But when I'm doing that three hour show, I'm not sure mistakes. It's part of it. We're artists. We're performing. The minute you get out of the perfect thing, the funnier you get. And I think I've bridged that where I have a sense of humor. I don't take myself too seriously. That's why podcasting works for me. Like there's no rigidity with it. It's kind of let it rip. I think that works for my personality. I'm not, I'm not a teleprompter reader. I'm not a host, the stoic host. The, you know, there, there are hosts I watch and they're so good at what they do and they're so refined and they're so classically hosty. And I'm not. Was there ever times in your career that those like more traditional hosty gigs were offered to you? I mean, the brand that you have built I'm sure some of those opportunities must have come your way with that like big shiny floor and, you know, that that's kind of situation. To be honest, Renee, it didn't exist. So I grew up in a world of columnists, local sportscasters and play by play guys. There wasn't a me when I went to ESPN. I've told this story before the first five years. They didn't know what to do with me. They're like, he doesn't do play by play. He's not really a host. He's got strong opinions. John Walsh the more cerebral of the executives at ESPN and John liked me and, and I wasn't traditional. So John said, you're the company theorist. You make us all think. And that was the first person at ESPN after five years that said, you know, they're trying to pigeonhole you here. And what you are is one of one. You're the company theorist. You, I drive to work. I listen to you. And then you create topics for other shows that people didn't think about. And that was the first person at the company. And I thought, that's kind of what I feel like I am. Like, I'm not Mike and Mike. I can't host like Scott Van Pelt. I can't do play-by-play -play like a Joe Buck. That's not what I am. And so I've never worried about comparing myself to others. This is what I do. It's my act. It's authentic. And I hope you like it. It's really interesting how that happens where, you know, I feel like somebody in your role, in the role that I've done throughout my career, I've worn so many different hats because I often feel a lot of the same thing of people don't really know what to do with me. And when I started doing commentary for Raw, essentially at the time, I was the best person for the job to step in there and do that. But like, I've never done play by play. I had not a clue what I was doing. So I'm thrown into the deep end trying to figure it out on national television in this insane situation. But that was not my strong suit. And it's funny how people often think when you just see someone working in sports of like, oh, well, you can do that and you can do that and you can do that. But they are really different roles. And it's really hard to succeed at all of them. When I created the volume, my takeaway was I wanted to hire people because I couldn't get into bidding wars with Fox and ESPN. So I wanted to hire people that they wouldn't know what to do with. 
I wanted to talk about the same sports, but I just wanted different angles on it. So I looked for people who did things differently. And so I've had a lot of people, really talented people that have asked, hey, can I be part of the volume? And it just doesn't fit what I'm trying to do. I'm not looking for traditional broadcasters. I want personalities. That's what I want. Maybe it's a, not that I have a sympathy, but I have, um, I connect with those people. Like networks don't know what to do with them. And it's like, oh, I do. I know exactly what to do with them. Create some digital stuff, let them be themselves, interview whoever they want. Like Jenkins and Jones, it's almost like on some days it's comedy and basketball. It's cultural. You know, what you're doing, you're stepping out and interviewing people beyond what you've done before. When I look at you, I just think, oh, she's entertaining. Sometimes corporate executives, and it's not a criticism, it's a reality of the platforms they have and the roles they need to fill. They're looking for certain things. I was just looking for entertaining people. I didn't really care what they were, man, woman, young, old. I didn't care. And so that's what I've tried to cobble together. And I think we're doing a good job. Why did you want to start doing the volume? How did that seed sort of get planted in your brain that that's what you wanted to do next in your career? Well, the pandemic hit and it was killing sports talk radio ratings and advertising. And uh, Julie Talbot, who is the CEO of Premier Radio, she had called me about two and a half months into the pandemic. And she said, you're killing. Your show is sold out. Your ratings are through the roof. And she just congratulated me. And I remember hanging up the phone thinking, well, if it's sold out now, what happens when people get back on the road? Because remember, cars weren't on the road in America. Nobody went to work. So I thought, if I don't create another platform, those advertisers will go to my rivals. And I didn't want to do any more hours on radio. Like I, I didn't want to do a four hour show. So I thought I'm just going to create a podcast network. So when the economy is good again, and we're charging more for spots and the show is sold out, I'll retain those advertisers. And it just grew really, really fast. We had an unbelievable fourth quarter. Again, it's a credit to really smart young executives and the people. It's really interesting that Draymond Green for us, you know, I think we surprised people when we landed him. He's classically the volume. He's absolutely what we are. He's a second rounder. He's overlooked. He's a grinder. He doesn't fit. What is he? He fits our role. We're like the land of misfit toys. Yeah. And, but I think I like, that's what I always wanted. I wanted people that didn't fit traditional roles. I just wanted smart, interesting people. I remember Alex Monaco did stand up. Yeah, that guy's a trip, man. A maniac. So I wanted to create a company that was 70% content, 30% gambling content. And I saw Monaco and I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, he's a comedian who does picks. That's not available on the market. And then Liv Moods. Remember somebody showed me the tape and she was, you know, obviously striking. And I'm like, confident. She's doing stuff from her home. Yeah, she's cool. That's my words. Like, yeah, she's, she's cool. So I, we have a stand-up comedian and Liv Moods. Totally unique in the marketplace of making picks. So again, same sports, different angles. So that to me has always been the fun in this is just finding these unique voices. Why do you think that these unique voices, and I do think that there is so much depth uh, to talent that exists under the volume and these people, you know, other people that exist outside of the volume. Why is it that they have a hard time finding where to fit in? I mean, I know there's a traditional side of things, but, you know, when you you look at being a personality on television, especially in like the sports world, I, I you know, I kind of look back at like what Keith Olbermann did and the changes that he made of being like a cool sports broadcaster. Why is it so hard to make that happen? When Steve Jobs created the iPhone, what he really did was say, I'm going to create something you don't know you need it yet. And it's going to be indispensable once I create it. We didn't think we needed it. Now we can't live without it. Most executives are not entrepreneurial. I think entrepreneurs, I'm not saying I'm some you know, great business person, but I think I have a little bit of that in me is that I'm always looking for stuff that you don't know you need yet, or you don't know you'll be addicted to yet. That to me is the fun in this, not going, he's just like him. Let's hire him. She's just like her. Yeah, you know, I've been doing this 25 years. I'm totally over that. I'm trying to find somebody and you go, what? That's, I'm not. And then all of a sudden, three months later, you're like, oh my God, I can't miss her podcast. That to me is the fun in this. Let's get into some of your health stuff. It was last summer. What all went down? 
I have the same waist I did in college. I work out every day or try to. I eat right. I'm kind of neurotic on food, not much else. I've seen you with the food. You cut out those carbs. You're really keeping it clean. Respect. So I got into a ski accident, I would say 15 months ago, where I crashed and broke a rib. And it hurt so much that I couldn't even go for like walks, forget runs, like walks hurt. So for about eight weeks, I was just sedentary. I never drank water because I was never thirsty because I never moved. I was drinking a lot of coffee because I was so tired and sleepy and laying in bed. And water thins the blood. Coffee does not. I wasn't moving and I was flying a lot. And all of a sudden, I got a little clot in my um, calf. It moved up. I got off a flight, went to dinner with my wife. And after about two bites of steak, I looked at her and I said, I feel like somebody just stabbed me. I've got to get to a hospital. I have no idea what's happening. I stood up and it was the most severe pain I've ever had in my life. And so it was the day before the Super Bowl. I called a friend, Mike Zizlis, who I'm in business with. And he literally, four minutes later, pulled down the street. I was around his neighborhood at a restaurant, got in the car, drove through 15 red lights. I don't know how we got there in 15 minutes. It was a Saturday night because of COVID. Nobody was allowed in. My wife wasn't allowed in. So I'm sitting there on a bed and they think it's COVID. They take all these tests and they're like, you have a blood clot. Then they put me upstairs in this area that was a little more serious. 36 hours later, I could still feel it, but I was on blood thinners. I was on blood thinners for about two months, maybe a little longer. And, uh, and they kept, you know, battery of blood tests, blood tests. I couldn't find anything. So it just happens. It was a, a, a series of events. And it was so funny because I went through this CAT scan or whatever it is, and the guy dropped me. So I was on this bed. I was in such severe pain. And it was almost, it was almost like a shock. I just screamed. I just, yeah, guys like, oh, bro, sorry. He's like 22 year old kid. And so I went back in that pain. And I remember thinking, I got to call my kids. I'm sitting there. Nobody can go in. It's COVID. Nobody can come in. And maybe I was being overly dramatic, but the pain for about 20 minutes was so severe. And I'm sitting there thinking, don't, you can't call them. You'll get emotional. Don't. But it was, it was rough. It's no fun to be in the emergency room with a blood clot. That has always been my fear. I mean, traveling as much as I did every week with WWE, I would think about that all the time. Like, what if it happened? It's a silent killer. Oh, my God. Like, that is so horrifying. How have people not died on flights over the Atlantic? All you do is sit down for 12 straight hours. No movement. We had a show in Australia in uh, Adelaide, I think. Um had the flight there and somebody did have a heart attack. I believe it wasn't a blood clot, but they had a heart attack on the flight in first class. And um, old school wrestler Michael Hayes happened to be the person who he looks like a little bit insane. And I mean this with the best intentions. He just has like crazy long hair. He's wearing like a full like, you know, teal or like lilac purple suit. And he's he is the one to jump to this man's aid with CPR. And yeah, I had to like we had to stop down somewhere else in Australia before we took off. But like, that's the fear, taking those long flights of like, what's going to happen? It makes me, it gives me anxiety to even think about. One of the reasons I won't go to Australia, I don't think I'm built to do 14 hours on the plane this point going forward. Now, again, I'm going to go for a run today. I drink water nonstop. I don't take elevators since then. Have you ever been stuck in an elevator? No. As a kid, I, I was a little claustrophobic. I remember being part of a, a football game we won and people piled on me. <laughs> It's horrifying. <laughs> I'm like a late in life claustrophobic. I never used to suffer from it. Now I'm like, oh my God, like getting in an elevator is my nightmare. I tell my wife I have professional claustrophobia. I do not like feeling trapped as a broadcaster. You have to do this. You have to say this. Here's the teleprompter. I just don't like it. I don't like being, you know, when I created this podcast network, I don't think, you know, my employers initially loved it. And I'm like, listen, I'm going to do it and, or we just can't be in business long-term together. So like, I don't want to be trapped. If I feel trapped, I'm out. It's professional claustrophobia. I'm out. 
especially at this point in your career, like for somebody to dare try to tell you what you can or cannot do, you've built your own empire at this point. That that boat has sailed. I hope so. Yeah, I think so. It has. The boat has sailed. You're you're doing it. You you. <laughs> Confirmed from me, okay. not your agent, but but I'm here to say that. Um, you mentioned your wife. What's your relationship like with your wife? How did you guys meet? Let's get into a little call and romance. I was divorced amicably, although initially it wasn't amicable probably as much as I'd like it to be, but um, the first six months to a year, tough, right? You don't see your kids as much. It's pretty emotional. So I was divorced and uh, living in a condo in Hartford. And I was looking for something, it was renting it. I was looking for something full-time. And I went to this, uh, my Liz was the name of my real estate agent. And she said, uh, I've got this woman and she's been like separated for like eight or nine months or whatever it is. Her name is Anne. And she goes, I don't set people up. I'm not saying it's from me, but she's a designer. And you said you were looking for a designer if you bought your place. Here's her number. So as she was talking, I dialed Anne's number and put it on speaker. And Liz is like, looks at me and I said, hey, Ann, I heard you're hot. Let's go out. Liz Tear totally set me up. And Liz starts screaming, you blankety blank. And Ann's laughing and Liz is screaming. And I said, hey, I need a designer, but I'd love to go out with you. And I knew instantly. I just knew. I just, she was really culturally with it and funny and attractive. You know, you could have a cocktail with her. She was just easy breezy talker. And, uh, you know, we'd both been kind of beaten up a little bit. We were just kind of, we're looking for companionship and fun and laughs. Cause you know, when you go through that, man, it's dark. I think we both kind of looked at each other and thought this will be fun. She was a really fun personality. Uh, she broke up with me six times in six months. Oh God, she broke up with me. How did you get her to keep taking you back? Were you like out with like the stereo outside her house? I had an epiphany. So um, we broke up a lot and stuff. And even I would say the first year of our marriage, it was, she's a feisty Irish girl with a strong point of view, very creative. She's an artist. And I went to a therapist and uh, I think I've told this story on some platform. So I'd been to him about 10, 12 times. I had moved from Los Angeles and it was just a lot. I was moving kids and family and schools, a new job, tons of stress. I said, I, I feel some anxiety. I got to talk myself out of this stuff. So it was the 10th or 12th meeting with this uh, therapist. In the meeting, he mentioned something and he goes, that's why you can't see the frog. And I went, what? And he goes, yeah, that's why you can't see the frog. And I said, what are you talking about? I thought it was code for something, right? And he said, move your eyes up two inches. And I moved my eyes up and there was a giant frog hanging from one of his lights. He said, it's been there five years. You've never seen it. He goes, that's your brain type. He goes, your wife would walk in here. The next time she would come in, if I removed it, if I changed colors, she would know everything in this office. And it was a real eye-opener for me. We have never argued much since. That was a long time ago. And it was really an eye-opener that we have different brains. It's really made me think differently about people in general, is that you go to these social media platforms and everybody's trying to convince everybody else to think like them. And we all have different brain types. I married an artist. So the laughs are big, the fights are feisty. That's who she is. She can see things before I can see things. But I also think I add more of a sort of unemotional, sort of kind of common sense, bring it down, you know, take the heat out of the room a little bit sometimes because my mom was British, very reticent, very British. You know, my dad was the stoic doctor. So that's my brain type and hers is the opposite. But it, it was a real moment where I was like, why am I trying to make her think like me? What's the point of this? This is really not good for us. What made you start getting into therapy? I love a good therapy session. As so, I don't even do therapy, but I love that other people do therapy. I should do therapy. This is my therapy. So I put my kids now occasionally in therapy if they have an issue because I'm not a professional. Go talk to a therapist. What do they think? Here's a voice that's not judging you. Um, so I think I was in my 20s in Las Vegas, multiple divorces with my parents. I think I just wanted a smart, older set of ears. And I just wanted somebody smart to listen and figure out some of my idiosyncratic issues. And I haven't done it since that time. So I haven't done it in years, but um, I'm always open to a fresh set of ears and perspectives. That's really interesting. At like 24, that's really impressive that you kind of had the wherewithal to go in and do that at that time, because it was, certainly was not as popular as it is now. Was it hard for you to come to that conclusion that you wanted to go into therapy or did it make you feel like that stigma of that, like, I'm wacko? I was really excited about it. And, and you know what I was finding? 
that the women I was dating at this time I was single, they were all saying the same thing. I mean, they all liked me, but they would be like, oh, no other woman could deal with this. They all said that. Like, what were some of these things? What were the hangups? I was just so willful and dogmatic about what I believed and you couldn't stop me. And I, I was uh, not uncaring, but just so driven. I would stay home on a Friday night and tape broadcasters on a cassette, study them and write. And these women were just like, this is not normal. I've dated other men. This is uh, now, of course, those I haven't talked to a lot of those women in a long time. Now the women over the last you know 20 years have been like, I always knew you were going to do great. And I'm like, you dumped me. What you, <laughs> what you, right. You, you, you broke my heart. What are you talking about? Wasn't good enough then when I was grinding away and it seemed insane. But now that it's my job, it's cool all of a sudden. Thanks. Yeah, right. That's so funny. You as a dad, what do you like as a dad with your kids? Not a helicopter parent. I would rather they make mistakes while... They were either living with me or I feel like I have, I'm more of a seminal voice in their life. You know, they get married and nobody, you know, you're going to avoid me, right? So pre-21, I can have more of an influence. Again, I, they're human beings. They're not human doings. So they're going to do what they want to do. And I let them. They both have a strong point of view. Uh, they're very different. Sometimes I think my daughter would be happy being kind of a successful hippie. My son is very techy and very driven. Um, I try to be there for them, support them, not spoil them. But parenting's hard. Seeing your kids get their heart broken or seeing your kids disappointed, it's hard. It's the hardest thing of my life. Was it hard to not spoil your kids? I mean, having, you know, being financially well off and living in California, having all these beautiful things right there, was it hard to not spoil them? I, we've always had a rule, education and experiences will spare no cost. I'm going to give you experiences and any education, we're not going to talk about what it costs. It is what it is. After that, I think I live a very normal life. I don't own a watch. I don't have a second car. I'm not into stuff. I'm not a stuff guy. Yeah, I'm not a carpet. I could give a shit about spending money on a car. What a waste of money. I actually don't even have a car right now. So I don't have like those guy things, golf club memberships, multiple cars, boats. It just, it's not my thing. Watches, uh, it's stuff guy. I'm not, that's not me. So we don't live an exorbitant life now. Do I fly private occasionally? Yeah. Have I taken them on that private jet occasionally? Yeah. Because I, and I tell uh, their mom this. I'm like, listen, I'm not going to pretend I haven't done well. When I look at our kids, the six of us together and for me too, I don't think they're spoiled. I think they have some comforts. I, I not, not comforts. I would say, because none of them are living in, you know, they're living in just regular old apartments all over the country. I would say they've had experiences that are perhaps a little higher end than some kids, but not exorbitant. I mean, we're not hella skiing in Aspen. We're not doing that stuff. We should try that at some point. I mean, it sounds, it sounds lovely. I, I would. I'm going to try. <laughs> it sounds it. really great. Hey guys, if you're here listening to the sessions, thank you. Hello. Hi. And you love some combat sports. Well, be sure to check out Boxing with Chris Mannix. It's every Friday as he talks with the biggest names in boxing, UFC, and yes, even the occasional wrestling superstar. Chris is one of the most passionate and influential voices in the sport, and he's here every week to help you get smarter on all things boxing. He'll also help you win some money on FanDuel with his weekly betting segment where he breaks down the best bets for all the big fights. Download Boxing with Chris Mannix only here on the Volume Podcast Network. Let's talk about wrestling for a little bit um, because it has been quite the week. Um, what was your reaction, I guess, to um, to the passing of Scott Hall and um, just kind of building up, I guess, I guess build up is maybe not that right word, but like knowing that he was on life support and kind of, you know, kind of keeping your finger on the pulse as to what was going on with, with him. When you hear like the life support thing, you think, okay, you always want to be positive, right? Like, oh, this, this person can maybe 
maybe they pull out of this. But, you know, also, too, you know, all this stuff with with COVID and, you know, they put them under an induced coma. You think, okay, maybe this is this is what they're doing, you know, just in case. And then Kevin Nash writes the most saddest like thing on his Instagram page. And my heart sank. And I'm like, oh, wow, this icon from the 90s, which hits a little bit more close to home than the wrestlers from the 80s, is because now you're a little more hip to the game and you're like 8, 9, 10, maybe even 12 when these cats are, are working. So you're more cognizant of of who they are and you really, you really watch them. You truly grew up on those guys, yeah. Yeah, like I loved Savage and Warrior as a kid, but I remember them through like rose-colored glasses as a child. You know, seeing Scott Hall come out on Monday Night Nitro and say, you know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here was mind-blowing to a freshman in high school because now it was like, yo, that was Razor Ramon, and now he's Scott Hall. Whoa, what's going on? And he came out in the Canadian tuxedo, and several weeks later, Kevin Nash comes, and then they really start what changes the game in professional wrestling. And I think of him as he has had all these athletic accomplishments, and they're amazing. Yes, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels did the ladder matches before, but those were in house shows. But what Scott Hall and Shawn Michaels did at WrestleMania and at SummerSlam, to me, those are quintessential pivotal ladder matches that have withstood the test of time and they've aged extremely well. Now, I understand Hardy's ladder matches and then all these other ladder matches we see now in this current landscape. They're great. The bumps become crazier. But I think the simplicity of what Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon did tells a better story where the bumps weren't crazy. They used the ladder as a weapon, not something to jump off. Right. Of. And again, it's just apples and oranges to what, you know, what your favorite nuance is with wrestling. Sure. And as times change, of course, everyone's looking for like, what can the spot be to be different, to stand out? So it's like things always escalate and are going to get crazier and crazier. I remember the most jaw-dropping thing that I I remember what Scott Hall did was he walked underneath the ladder. Yes, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's taboo. Oh, that's bad luck. Where's the black cat? Exactly. Like, that's some spooky shit. And then, you know, he he wound up being victorious. And, you know, at the end, he holds up the two belts like the god that he was. Because, you know, if you think about intercontinental champions, he is a four-time intercontinental champion. So that's the the belt that I, I put with him. And, you know, that was the, at a time when that belt meant that you were going to get catapulted to the next level. So to see him do all that is great. But I think his most important accomplishment, and I think it sets up for wrestlers now, is the idea of talking about and not making it taboo to talk about how much money you make with your friends and contemporaries in that industry, where it's like, okay, well, they offered me this, so now I think you can get this. And if it's not comparable, WCW offered me this. That was such a game changer for professional wrestling, what he did with that. I think it's just a game changer in regards to just talking to your friends about money because I do it with my contemporaries in my industry. Even I've had conversations with you about certain things and you're like, go after this because this is what they're offering. So go out and get it. I do think it's important to have those conversations because, yeah, if you don't know and you're just like shooting in the dark, like you have no idea what other people are making or what those conversations are that people are having. And yeah, it, it especially now as we're talking, you know, about like equality, especially, you know, when you're looking at what, what men are making and what women are making and trying to like raise the bar there. I think, you know, being able to have those conversations is super important. I don't know that it needs to be like public information, but yeah, I think amongst peers, amongst your contemporaries to have those conversations is really important. You know, it's funny because all he really wanted was an opportunity to work in Japan. He wanted to go to All Japan Pro Wrestling. He wanted to do some stuff there and he wanted a 5% merch boost up because at the time they weren't given 5% and Vince couldn't agree to that. So he, that's why he really dipped. It wasn't because, like, he said he would have stayed if he just played ball a little bit. Then you're able to get all this cool stuff with, with what Bischoff offers, and it's like, great, let's do it. So without, like, he's part of that fabric that changed the entire landscape, the whole thing. And it, and it's interesting. Like, like Gallows and Anderson have talked about that on their podcast in depth 
about when they were renegotiating their contract. I won't say who, who. No, but I know at that time, a lot of people were starting to have conversations to keep everyone in the loop as to like what was going on. And I think that not that that was unprecedented, but it was really cool that everyone was really kind of on the same page in terms of like, this is what everyone's worth. Right. They said that um, this person came in and said, hey, this is what they offered me. Go ask for what you're worth. And everybody in the locker room, from what they said, they just looked at each other, shook their head and was like, wow, let's have this conversation. And to me, I think that's the most important thing in professional wrestling is to have that conversation and not be so secretive about that. Because you know what? You're all doing the same thing. You all have something unique and insulary to offer each other. You put in your bodies on the line. And to be honest with you, like at 50 years old, you want to look back and you want to say, yo, I got a couple of M's in the bank because I, I took a bump on some barbed wire or I went through a table or I jumped off something or I was on the road for 300 days. That alone time-wise of there's no season, obviously what your body's going through, um, it, it it just takes such a toll on you mentally, physically, from all aspects. I mean, you look at any other professional sport, you look at any other entertainment entity and what you know or have an idea of that certain actors and athletes are making, it can pale in comparison to what professional wrestlers make. And it's a smaller number in terms of like which wrestlers are able to walk away and be able to sit back and enjoy their lives on the other side of things. It's just unfair. And I think that you and I are a bit more privy to certain informations and and certain quarterly reports that come in because you know, we're hip to the game and, you know, whatever, you you have had this amazing career and you're married to who you're married. So, like, there, there's these conversations. The professional wrestler as a performer, while they do get paid handsomely, also gets robbed. I know it is sort of that weird thing that's like, I you know, I know for, you know, for a lot of people listening to this, they're like, whatever, they get paid a lot of money. But it's like in terms of like, you know, what if, if you're able to walk away or hobble away or what damage has been done to your body, have, you know, the time away from your family. Yes, this is the career that you sign up for and you're chasing your dreams and these aspirations that you have. But there is another side of it that comes along with that. And it can be real rough out there in those streets. Uh, but that being said, there's never been a better time than right now for people to be out there and getting paid and knowing their worth and starting to see that bottom line rise. Thank God. And again, because of guys like Kevin Nash and Scott Hall having those conversations, to quote Fat Joe, yesterday's price is not today's price. (laughs) And they sold a lot of outsider teas. (laughs) They sure did. Yeah, you know, my my sort of biggest takeaway um, from the passing of Scott Hall, I mean, he is not someone that I got to spend a lot of time with uh, during my career. Uh, You know, I've been able to spend time with him at Hall of Fames and, you know, just meet him and say hello. It's, you know, I never had that opportunity to have great in-depth conversations with him, so to speak. But seeing seeing what other people were able to say, and that seemed to be a big thing a lot of people were saying, man, I will cherish those conversations that I had with him. Um, just his wisdom as a professional wrestler, the things that he were, was able to bring to the table to the way that the game has changed now, Uh, I know so many people that were able to really have um, meaningful, important conversations with Scott Hall, whether it was about their career, family, whatever. Um, I think that he was very generous with people with his time in terms of that. Um, And that 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 was really sort of my big takeaway. And obviously, the people that were very close with him, seeing Hunter post about him, Sean Waltman. Yeah, it's, it's very sad, heartbreaking to see that happen at such a young age. Um, and the video package WWE put together was amazing. I know they put together a thing on YouTube as well of like some really great Scott Hall moments. Um, but yeah, just sad day in wrestling. That's for sure. Go back. Watch a ton of stuff. He's on Peacock with everything. There's a rich history of WWE career with him and there's a rich history of WCW. And then if you want to go back and go on YouTube, he was Starship Coyote. When he was wrestling on, like, I think it was AWA or whatever. Starship Coyote. But he was just a bad motherfucker, period. It's hard for someone to just be, like, fucking cool, you know? He did it effortlessly. And one of the fun things that I didn't know 
about like Scarface and all of that when I was about 12. I learned about Scarface like this is this movie at like 15. You know what I mean? But like so I'm watching this and I remember this and I, and we're watching this in film class in high school and we're breaking down the film and I get up and I go, "Yo, this is Razor Ramon, bro." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is where we got it from. Holy shit. Okay. So funny when things like that do that, when you like learn about something from another program, like whether, you know, learning about Scarface from Razor Ramon, there's so many things that like watching like the Simpsons and I'm like, oh, that's what the telltale heart is. That's, you know, all those moments that like get, you know, the the light shone on them from like other programs. Very funny when like those worlds collide and your brain's like, oh shit, that's what that means. One of the greatest tweets that I ever seen in regards to Scott Hall, just I was I was looking on, uh, I, f- I forget the person and I'm sorry, but like um, they said the fact that Scott Hall pulled up into Opalaka, wore 15 pounds of gold jewelry and fuchsia pants and walked out untouched. <laughs> that is a G. <laughs> and you think about it, like there's an iconic photo of Scott in Opalaka wearing fuchsia pants. And what seems to be like 25 pounds of jewelry on his neck. And he's sitting there and it's the coldest picture in the world. (laughs) And I thought also another cool thing that's been popping back up was when he went on Jerry Springer and surprised the two kids that were living with HIV. And and he came on and was just like hugging them and kissing them and giving them like support and just like talking about how cool they are. And, and and he did this in full gimmick. So cool. I always thought, wow, man, that is... And this was way before their like charitable hand that they held the WWE. Yeah, so, yeah, of course. And to do that at the time too, when, when, when nobody was really understanding what AIDS and HIV was. Yeah. You know, like yeah. people wouldn't even want to... They wouldn't even want to go near somebody if they had those things, let alone hug right, and kiss a kid. Right, when we didn't have the education. Yeah, yeah. so to yeah. me, like, yo, like that's incredibly cool and selfless. That just goes to show how good of a heart that that guy had. So, RIP, man. Yeah, absolutely. Another big thing that happened this past week, um, I, I don't know how much you want to get into this um, with what happened to Big E. Of course, you stayed in touch with him a lot. You were sort of my pipeline to make sure that everything was cool with E, even though like the dude broke his neck and still like I'm sure he's being flooded with a million different text messages and for him to still like get back to everybody and let them know, yeah, I'm good. You know, whatever the response was via text message to whomever. But it was scary. That's for sure. Um, You know, I wasn't watching because I was in the middle of something else, but well, my text messages blew up. Did you see? Oh my God, how is he? And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? And then I, I, I saw the gif. And then immediately my heart sank because I got really nervous because of the way it looked and the way his body, the way it shook after the impact and he landed and he was on his back and the way it like convulsed real quick. That's what made me nervous even more. I immediately started to reach out to a couple of people and they got back to me real quick. Thank God for that. And I, and I appreciate that. And I thank them immensely for that. And I got the, the 411. There's some mobility in his hands. Okay. That's a good sign. I immediately jump on the line. I go, yo, you don't have to hit me back. If you can, whenever, just let me know that, that you're okay or, or whatever. Cause I was ready to get on a plane and go to Alabama. That's that. That's my guy. You know what I mean? Like, and I think one day we have to really have that conversation because without him, there would be no us. Yeah. I love him like like my brother Vincent. Like, there's no like my mother calls him her son, and like you know, he's been to my house for dinner. Calls my mom, mom, my dad, pop. Like, I I, I love him. Yeah, he's a magical human being. Uh, yeah, outside of just being magical, like I know him 13 years, and we talk every day, all day. So when he texted me back, he was like, no surgery, great mobility, no nerve damage. And I'm like, all right, great. What a miracle. What an absolute miracle. And I feel like that's the thing with this dude that's like, I mean, when you say that Big E is this like magical human being, like truly, if uh, if there is some other being looking out for people, that was that moment. 
Uh, because if there's ever been somebody that like deserves to like get a free pass and be like, you're good. We got you. Crazy. Yeah, because the way you land that way with that much force. Directly on top of his head. And Biggie is a big man, as we know. Large fellow. So to me, I see that and my jaw drops. And then there's like, you know, and then all these other cats hit you up. Like, and most of them were like journalists. And I'm like, I'm not, an- I'm Ew, not answering you. Or like here. these, um, yeah. these what I like to call hanger honors and the bootlickers. Like the genuine people reached out to me and like, is he okay? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, you don't know what to think. And you try to be a positive person because you want to throw out the good juju out there because you want... You want this person that you love to be okay. And you don't want to think the bad stuff. But ultimately, like you think, oh my God, what's going to happen? Oh, it's, it makes your stomach turn immediately. I mean, to, I was in the same boat as you were. Like, I was not watching live, but, you know, checking stuff on my phone. It's like, wait, I saw your tweet saying, I feel sick to my stomach. And then I saw Amanda Huber say the same thing. And I was like, what happened? And that's when I messaged you. I was like, I haven't seen anything. I don't know what happened. I had zero context of what had happened. I I just knew that it was something involving Biggie. I had not seen the GIF. I had to like search it. And I was like, do I even want to see this? I don't know. Um, but it, John and I, like obviously, I was, you know, I, John and I were talking about it and uh, I was keeping him updated through you as well of just like what was going on with the situation. But I mean, you look at somebody like E. For him to be so gigantic and go through something like that. But if he was not as strong and as thick as he is, who knows what could have happened otherwise, right? Yeah, that's the scary part. And, you know, for him to go on Twitter immediately and then do a video, um, you know, it's like that 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 says a lot because it's more like, you know, he could easily be like, I don't want to, I'm not talking about any, to anything or anybody right now. And I need to relax and worry about me. He legitimately was like, let me just put this out there so everything, like everybody can just pump the brakes a little bit. Yeah. I mean, same as you. It's like I reached out to him. I was like, obviously not expecting him to get back. I'm like, you're going through some shit. And then to like even have a, a response from him to like take the time to like get back to the millions of people uh, that were reaching out to make sure that he was okay. But I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, it is really just like another example of like how dangerous wrestling can be i mean for it to be a belly to belly suplex i mean he's done a million times it it's this it's you know it it is really scary it's like i told you i don't know how you do it with your husband i've seen him go through play class with nick gage i've seen him take a a pizza cutter to the mouth i i i've seen him bloody and bruised and i'm like oh he's just going to be fine you know because you think like okay this is what they do they're trained for this they mentally prepare that they know they're going to do this but you know you see some questionable shit when it's the person that you care for the most your heart is in your stomach every time they go out there can i tell you this though the most difficult match i've ever had watching john do was him and brian why was that on the at the pay-per-view cuz they beat the shit out of each other Holy shit. I'm watching it from home and I'm like, oh my God. And like, again, past my bedtime. And I'm like, I got, and it was Sunday night and I was doing this shoot that I can't tell you about yet. Uh, I had to work the next day. So I'm like, just shoot me a text. Call me when you're done. I just want to know that you're okay. And like, I do that after like most of his matches, just be like, we always talk like afterwards, but it was like an hour had gone by and I'm like, are you okay? Because, like, yeah, they they beat the ever-loving shit out of each other, plus slaps to the face from Regal on top of that, where I'm just like, oh, my God. Uh, that truly affected me more. Because you could hear those hits landing, those kicks, that strong style. And you just know that, I mean, Bree and I, you know, I was just like, oh, oh, my gosh, like, are we seeing this? Is this, what the fuck? Right, and then, like, <laughs> that's my thing. At what point is enough enough? And I asked your husband that question after I seen what he did with Nick Gage in Atlantic City. You know, we're hanging out afterwards. And I'm like, John, I got to be honest, bro. When's enough enough? Did he give you an answer? Did he tell you? He he just looked at me and he like, and this is like the most emotion I, I, I ever got. He just gave me one of these, when I figure it out, bro, I'll figure it out. 
And, um, oh and my then, god! You know, yeah, and then we just we just went on to to something else. But you know, I'm I, and I asked E that too. Like, bro, when's enough enough? And he was like, I wish I could tell you. He goes, I wish I could tell you. This is the way I look at it too. It's like as much as there are times that I'm like, you know, watching a match through my hands and being like, oh my god, like whether it's John or somebody else, these guys love what they do. This is their entire livelihood. And for that to not be a thing for them anymore or to like walk away and be like, okay, I've made enough money or I've checked off these bucket listings that I wanted to do. It's like, it doesn't really work like that. You know, it's you have these other goals and your goals change throughout the duration of your career. And now there's these new things that you want to do or there's this new guy you want to work with. There's so many different things that change and that's like the thing that keeps them going. And, you know, as much as I don't wrestle, I still have like other goals and I'm constantly like my stuff is always changing all the time. Like I can relate in terms of that, of like you love what you do so much. You live and breathe it. Even when you're taking a break, when you're taking a break and having downtime, it's you, uh, you know, whether it's him listening to a wrestling podcast or he's watching like old WCW or watching old New Japan or whatever it is that he happens to be watching. It's like it, it doesn't go away. I respect guys like that. I, and I respect women like that that say this is what I can't walk away from. But my question is, at what point do you feel like you age? Because we all age out of everything. Like there's a like there's a time and a place. And my question would be. Specifically, we'll just use John as an example. Like you're in your thirties, don't you want to like just hang out with the kid, the wife, and not like not make it hurt when you got to get up out of bed? Like my dad was a uni construction worker, like herniated discs, neck, back, the whole nine. Needs double knee replacements. He's he's shot, and I used to hear him get out of. It used to be a process to get out of bed because he was so stiff and sore and beat up, but he knew like he had to go out. And go to work and do a really grueling job. And it's like now he's like retired. And he I asked him, would you do it again? And he goes to provide for my family in a heartbeat. I always will remember like very early on John and I dating and me sort of understanding more of like what his body has been through because it's one thing to watch and be a spectator and also just like enjoy professional wrestling and blah, blah, blah. But I always remember it was like early in the morning and he was getting out of bed, just like walking to the washroom or whatever. And the limp that he had, I was like, are your legs uneven? What is going on right now? Why are you walking like this? And I was like, oh, shit, you're beat up. You're, I don't know what match it was yet before. If it was a pay-per-view the night before or what. But I mean, he is not a mail it in kind of guy. We know that. I mean, no matter what the situation is, he's never just going to mail it in. Um, it's got that that integrity to stand by. What a hunk. I want to see him in a pair of Gurkhas. Oh my gosh, could you imagine? Especially with this like trim waist that he's working with right now. Like a Gurkha could work for him because it's good for get the him thigh. A pair of you want to get him Should a pair order of Gurkhas? Should we order him some? Do we, do we know his waist size? And Can his... you imagine John coming out to wrestle in some Gurkhas? Wild thing comes out and then you see him in Gurkhas <laughs> and I'm just like. With a penny loafer. <laughs> I'm going to be like, me and Renee hold influence. Suck it, TV oh world. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, listen, if we want to do a little investment and see what we can come up with. I'll PayPal you right now for Gurkha Watch with, <laughs> with, with Moxley. Hey, speaking of uh, not Gurkha Watch, but Cody Rhodes Watch, what's his deal? I'm so into this. It is disgusting. I am too. I know. I don't want to be, but I am. I'm I'm in. Every week you're thinking, is this the moment he comes and attacks Seth Rollins? But the telling thing last night, uh, Corey Graves, a master of words, makes a slight little Easter egg and says something about he references the word nightmare. I forget exactly what he said, but my ears peaked. And I was like, ooh, Graves, you devil tongue bastard, you. And it was so good. So so if we could play speculation, right? But people are saying the talks have, have been cooled down. He left AEW too early, whatever. I think it would be incredibly cool and incredibly different if he doesn't show up on Monday Night Raw. And he shows up either the first night or the second night of WrestleMania, I think it's a bigger moment and it's a bigger pop and he's earned that right to have that incredible WrestleMania moment 
where it's like it's not the conventional he's going to do the TV beforehand to lead into the pay-per-view. He shows up, he's there, and then him and Rollins do whatever they do. Well, it's also interesting because I saw someone posting about this yesterday, but they're like, man, like it's actually pretty smart of like dragging it out because everyone is waiting one to see what's going to happen. It's like you're, you know, WWE fans are excited because there's something to look forward to. But now it's also making AEW fans head spin the other way. It's like everyone's watching and waiting to see what's going to happen. It's pretty cool. Cody's a cool dude, man. What he was able to do in the last three years, you have to give that brother his flowers. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, and I don't think the Internet really gives this dude the credit, man, because like he. That's fucked up. It, it is. It is fucked up. And. He's he's an extremely intelligent guy and he knows the business. And listen, he's he's the brother of one of the greats and he's the the son of probably one of the best of the best to ever do it. Oh, yeah. And and he un- who doesn't put Dusty on their Mount Rushmore? It has you know? to be. Come on, babies. Come on, baby. What he was able to do and to to create the star that he is now is really telling because if you look at how he ended, he was in a gold lamé jumpsuit hissing on camera. I would just like to say that I've always been a huge Stardust fan, so I will not tolerate <laughs> any Stardust shit talking on this no, show. No, I won't. I won't shit talk it because I loved it. I I have some beauty. I'm a huge I loved it. Fan. I, you give me like the the face paint and the the pageantry, the, the cartwheels, the the even the weird promos about the the cosmos. Yeah. Like you yeah. give me all that shit, I'm in. I thought it was great. I'm also a massive Gold Dust fan, so like of course I love Stardust. But also, like, you look at Cody Rhodes and the wrestler that he was, the wrestler that he is, and to pl- like to drop him in on that character was like, wait, what the fuck? But he, like, really made it into something cool. You give that guy something, he's going to turn it into something special. I mean, he used to do the dashing Cody Rhodes thing, too. Oh, my too. God. Like he, the mustache. The face mask. The, the, the paper bags over fans' faces. Oh, my God. I loved it. But what was real telling to me was he was like, yo, I'm out. And then he reinvented himself, so to speak, went on to this incredible run in New Japan Pro Wrestling, IWGP United States Heavyweight Champion. And he was also Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Champion, NWA World Champion. So it's like, wow, he really carved out a legacy. You know, I remember the internet went crazy when he did that list of people he wanted to wrestle on the indies when he left. We see what happens with... You know, before it was AEW, they did that one pay-per-view, you know, uh, all in. That's when he wrestled Nick Aldis, right? Is that right? Yep. And he won the championship. Yeah. And then it becomes what AEW became. I think it's amazing to see. I mean, you know, even when like when Cody left WWE and I I mean, that alone, I was like, oh, my God, look, at the, yes, go and carve your own path and go do the thing you want to do. And the fact that he was able to do that and be so instrumental in so many things and like truly shaking up the scene and walking away from from that situation um, to to looking at now. It's like for people like, oh, he's going to go back to WWE, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, he went and did the thing and he he upped his own star value. Um, and now he's going to go back and show them what they had in the star that he is. So I think it's really cool. And I think for him, I mean, I know he teases retirement at some point and whatnot. So I think if if this was to be the situation that he wants to wrap up his career and put a nice bow in it and then move on to whatever the next thing is going to be, I think it's great for him to really prove to everybody the, the value that he brings. And I think it's also just incredibly cool to hold the and, you know, hopefully he would get the opportunity to hold the one championship that his dad didn't have the opportunity to do. And, you know, he added so much equity to his name where now on paper, yes, you can say Cody Rhodes, WWE, whatever they're going to do, if they're going to merge these two championships come come WrestleMania, um, you don't know. But I think, you know, it's it's an incredible pin in a vast and rich career. Cody, we're all watching, dude. Wear a pair of Gurkhas, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for hanging out with us, guys. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the week, enjoyed the best of the sessions. You guys can hear the full-length interviews um, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just uh, download them, give them a listen, give them a like, a review. And if you want to see 
what you're hearing. Head on over to my YouTube page. Just search Renee Paquette. It's all up there and you can see us talking, having this interview, having a hangout. It's all up on there. Um, And that's been like a really great, cool, growing community. So uh, I'm really enjoying the hangouts on the YouTube as well. So we can see you guys over there and jump in the comment section, you know, jump in, chime in, leave a comment. Uh, We like filtering through them all, reading about them, maybe even like, I don't know, some constructive criticism if you had it. We're all ears. God, did I open up a can of worms by saying that? I don't know. Be nice. Be cool in there. This has been The Sessions.